Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, and Galatians chapter 6, verse 14. Um, yesterday morning for the men's meeting, I had no problem with my voice, but it sounds weird to me today. I don't know if it's the hearing aids or what, but we'll see what happens. Um, the call to glory in the cross. The call to glory in the cross. That's our theme for this morning. And I got to thinking about it when I changed horses. <laughs> I was on another theme, and Cindy always panics when I change. But I keep coming back to this. It's not the same message, but it's the same text. In approximately 1979, I received a cassette tape from a young pastor up in Pennsylvania. He was young then. He's now with the Lord. Uh, I'd never heard of him before. And he preached on these verses. And I took some notes. And this is a far cry from whatever that was. But uh, that began a journey on just uh, needing personally to focus on these two verses and to tie them in with the seven statements of Jesus from the cross. And so that's what we hope to do this morning. And it's designed to be a follow-up to last week. And we did, in the newsletter last week, put most of what we shared last Sunday in it. And I would encourage you to, if you have not, that you take the pages of that newsletter that talks about the steps of Jesus. And I must walk in the steps of Jesus because. I think there are about eight statements, numbers of scriptures, and it'll be a great blessing to you. So, uh, Let's begin this journey with prayer this morning, and our hearts are going to be called by the scriptures to glory in the cross of our Lord and Savior. Father, we bless you and praise you that we have this privilege to come and to worship you and to seek your face, and we desire above all else this morning that you are honored, that you are glorified. May our hearts be attentive to the word of God. Accomplish all of your grand purposes, and we bless you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Paul would write in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17, that through the foolishness of preaching the word of God, and that's where I'll start today, through the foolishness of the preaching of the word of God, I'm inviting myself and you to glory in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul would further tell us earlier in Galatians, Jesus Christ gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil world. Galatians 1, 4. There are a number of verses throughout this wonderful epistle 
that just give bullet points about the cross and their foundational. And so he gave himself for our sins to pay our sin debt to deliver us from this present evil world. Now, there is a future sense of that. There's coming a day when we will be delivered from this present evil world. But there is a current sense that when you are in Christ and walking with Christ, you are, as Paul would say to the Ephesians, we are seated with Christ in heavenly places. Uh, You might be driving down a street in Gallatin or sitting in your home or at your place of business, but because you are walking in fellowship with Jesus Christ, you're looking at life from God's point of view. You are making decisions from a heavenly perspective and not an earthly perspective. So that's current. That's right now. And that's why Jesus came to set us free from the frailties and the falsehoods of looking at life from the way man looks at it, to look at life from the way God looks at it, and to adjust ourselves accordingly. Now, in Galatians 4, verse 4 and 5, we are told that Jesus has redeemed his church, his ecclesia, his called out ones, from the curse, from the just penalty of God's holy law. There's nothing wrong with God's law. It's good, it's holy, it's perfect, but we are under the curse, that is, we have broken the law and we cannot keep the law and we are under its penalty. So we ask, what price did Jesus have to pay to accomplish deliverance from sin's power and from the law's curse. Behold the Lamb of God on Calvary. That's where it all took place. The only place it could. Now, as we approach Calvary, we know that by this time, all of the disciples had forsaken him All people had forsaken him, those who he'd healed and fed and all the rest. And yet, and of course he's being violently mistreated, and yet coming from his lips, the first thing coming from his lips is a prayer for his persecutors. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Is, is that a prayer you ever need to pray? The first martyr, Stephen, found good use of that. I have a feeling that he's a good model for us. Because we can't just say, well, that was Jesus, but it's also Stephen. He's a fellow believer. And, and so as we look at the sayings of Jesus from the cross, again, we're not just going through a history lesson. We are called to walk in the steps of Jesus. And so there is value not only in the things that he said in personal application and blessing to us, but there is value in the things that he said of us applying those sayings in our 
place of living and speaking the truth of these sayings to people in situations in our world. So, Jesus is not focused on himself. He's not focused on measuring his pain level. He's not, he's not upset. He's, he's focused on doing his Father's will. He's already been to Gethsemane and said, Not my will, but thine be done. And so in, in Luke 23, verse 34, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He doesn't condemn them. He doesn't merely pray for them. He came to a world that was already under the just condemnation of sin's penalty. He had no need to condemn anybody. And for such sinners as those and as we, Jesus went to the cross. He went to the cross to pay a debt that no one else could pay. Jesus paid the debt the sin debt of sinners. But that's of no value to you or anyone else until or unless you come to faith in Christ. If you refuse Jesus Christ, if you refuse to acknowledge that you are a sinner in need of Christ, doesn't matter what Jesus did. It won't do you any good. So flee to Christ. Take God at his word. We have all sinned. We've all come short of the glory of God. We, we need a sin bearer. We need a substitute. We need the sin debt paid. Again, as Jesus is there on the cross in a very painful situation, that's not the focus, but it's just a reality. He looks to a repentant thief and says, you shall be with me in paradise, Luke 23, 43. We live in a wonderful moment in time when we can say, according to the word of God, that all who come to him, he will in no wise cast out. He calls us to repent and believe. Have you, given, have you given consideration to the fact that when you take all the gospel accounts of the two people who were crucified simultaneously with Jesus, a thief on either side, the people all around were, were um, making fun and ranting and raving about Jesus, but... Both of the thieves, both of the thieves were railing on Jesus. If you just take passages by themselves, you might miss the fact that both of them are just alike. They both are railing on Jesus, and then suddenly one of them stops. And now he turns to the other thief and rebukes him. And he owns his sin. He says, look, you and I deserve to be here. And then he confesses this incredible revelation that nobody else is confessing. This man does not deserve to be here. How do you explain that? 
And so he cries out, Remember me. This was a grace awakening. This was not some great idea. He was not smarter than his fellow thief. This is a sovereign God at work in the heart of a man. And he gave him revelation. He gave him understanding. You'll never have that understanding until, first of all, there is an acknowledgement, I'm a sinner. May you be, you may be as close to eternity as these two guys. It doesn't matter if you're close or not. Cry for mercy. Cry for help. Jesus saves. The focus of Jesus continues to be on others as he looks, as recorded in John 19, 21 through 27. Woman, behold thy son. And to one of the others there he says, behold thy mother. All through the public ministry of Jesus we see him full of compassion caring for others, ministering. Do you know what happens when a person gets saved? They begin to walk in the steps of Jesus. They are, as Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 says, the workmanship of God. Created, we're saved by the grace of God, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God has before ordained that we walk in them. And when the God of heaven, when the Lord Jesus Christ has not only forgiven you of your sins, but now has come and your body is his temple, his Holy Spirit, you know what? You also will pity sinners and be merciful to them and have pity for failing saints. You won't be among the judgmental crowd. I can't believe they did that. Isn't it horrible what this world is coming to? You can't believe how wicked people are. That's the common fodder from many people, whether they're in church or not. It's very rare to see people saying, oh my God, these people are hurting and they're hurting others and they're blind. They're deceived. Oh God, pour out your spirit. You were merciful to me. I must be merciful to others. I've been forgiven, therefore I will forgive. I've been loved, therefore I will love. But you don't know what they've done against me. Well, think of all the things that we've done against Jesus. See, it's not an issue. When Christ is in your heart, you know that God has done an amazing thing. You didn't deserve it. You didn't earn it. He had mercy upon you. While we were yet sinners, he poured out his self on your behalf. And now I'm going to be like the guy 
Oh, forgive me this debt. I'll repay. He's forgiven. He goes out and the little guy owes just a little bit. He grabs him by the collar and demands he pay and he can't pay and so he has him thrown in jail. That guy is not a picture of someone who's had a saving encounter with Jesus Christ. The nature of the child of God is that we have pity for sinners because we remember our state when God saved us and we have pity for failing saints because we too know what it is to fail and we have power over sin. Power over our own sin. And power over the sin in others. You say, how on earth can I have power over the sin in others? By giving them the gospel. And the gospel can break down every barrier and bring them from death to life. Now, when you, when you go through the, the sayings of Jesus from the cross, as we want to spend our time today glorying in the cross, you, you know when we get to that fourth statement, we are in the most sacred territory in all of Scripture. And there's this profound statement from the lips of Jesus that we can look at and we can uh, receive it, but we, we, we don't have the ability to fully enter into it. But we can see enough to be astounded. The God of the universe, the second person of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus Christ, now the God-man, with a body prepared here upon the face of the earth. He's been tempted and tested at all points as we yet without sin, and now he is on the Calvary's cross. He's already been the subject of the nails in his hands and his feet and the sword and, and beatings and, and all of this. That's peanuts. Many have had that. But what happens next has never happened before, never happened again. And the words of Jesus help us to get a glimpse of something that's happening. In these moments, Jesus is becoming our sin bearer. God the Father is pouring out on him the wrath that we deserved. And Jesus says, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? We know from other scriptures that help us that Jesus was on a mission. John saw it early on. John 1, 29. Behold the Lamb of God who taketh away the sins of the world. 2 Corinthians 5.21, He knew no sin, but he was made sin for us. 1 Peter 2.24, He personally carried the burden of our sins in his own body. Isaiah 53, verse 3 and 6, God laid on him the iniquity of us all. 
Galatians 3.13, he was made a curse for us. All of these verses show us that what Jesus was doing on the cross was not for himself. It was not to be an example. He was there in behalf of others. He was there as a substitute, laying down his life for his sheep, dying to pay the sin debt of unworthy sinners. Have you ever come to Jesus to have your sin debt paid? I'm not asking you, did you join the church, been baptized, you remember this church, remember that church? There are millions of people all over the world who profess to be Christians. They're in the pulpits, they're in the pews, they're out fishing, they're all over the world. About 75% of all Americans say that they have a good chance of going to heaven. But you never hear them talking about having come to a point in their life where they were sinners without hope, without God, and they had revelation and understanding that Jesus on Calvary's cross paid the sin debt for sinners. If that's your testimony, hallelujah, that's the grace of God. We're dealing with the, the question of all questions. People have all kinds of questions and and they, you don't have to go far to you leave me in the dust. I don't know how to answer the questions, but you can take all the questions that men have ever set forth and there's one far above all of them. And there's only one answer to the question. And the question of all questions is how can God be just and holy and at the same time save a sinner without compromising his holiness, without compromising his love? It's only by this, Jesus on the cross. He hung there as a sacrifice. He satisfied the holy wrath of God. as he poured out his heart of love. He was made a curse for us. We've all sinned. We've all broken God's law. Sin pays wages to curse God's holy wrath upon those who have broken his law. God's justice must be satisfied. By the way, in all the passages in the Scripture concerning the suffering and the death of our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, especially if you go from the Garden of Gethsemane onward, you know who doesn't even get honorable mention, not mentioned at all? Satan. Had nothing to do with this. Not at Calvary, nor after his death, you see, the point is, this whole experience of Jesus going to Calvary, he was not paying off a debt to Satan. After his death, he did not go to hell and suffer at the hands of Satan. There are those who teach that. In contrast to the Word of God. Salvation is not a matter of being saved from the wrath of Satan. Salvation is a matter of being saved from the wrath of God. 
He's the one that we've sinned against. God is the offended one. Well, well, God's offended at me. Boy, are you messed up. And most people are messed up. Well, why should God be angry at me? What have I done? I'm a good person. I'm going to take God's word for it. I'm not going to take your word for it. I'm going to take God's word. We have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's none righteous. No, not one. It speaks about being cursed under a curse. What does it mean to be cursed by God? Well, let's look at the opposite. Sometimes that helps us. What does it mean to be blessed by God? The wonderful verses over in Numbers chapters 6. The Lord bless thee and keep thee. The Lord make his face to shine upon thee and be gracious to thee. And the Lord lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. To be in the sunshine favor of God. To be kept by God. To be able to enjoy his presence, to commune with him, to have fellowship with him. It's a blessing. The curse, the absence of all of God's gracious presence. The absence of all of God's favor. There are verses in the Bible that are very explicit about hell and fire and Jesus gives us these passages and it speaks of the torment and the flames I feel no need to interpret that but I will say that fire and flames only affect a human body for a time Hell is something far worse than you've ever imagined. Far worse than any flame could ever inflict. It is that. But it is a place cut off from God's gracious presence and favor. God is omnipresent. He's everywhere present. You mean he's present in hell? Yes, he is but not in grace, not in love, not in mercy, only in wrath. Our world has a lot of pain. Every day we read about it, hear about it. It gets local, it gets nearby. The horrors of this world put them all together, and they do not compare to the horror of hell. Well, I've had my hell here. No, you have not. There is only, in hell, there is only the penetration of God's wrath. In hell, you're cut off. You're cursed. And on the cross, when Jesus was made to be sin for us, He was cut off from all of the favor and the goodness and the kindness and the mercy and the love of his Father as he paid our sin debt. 
No wonder he cried out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? But wait a minute, Galatians 3.10 says, cursed are those who don't keep the law. Jesus kept the law. So why was he cursed? For our sake. In our place. He lived by faith, but we have not. Jesus went to the cross on our behalf as our substitute, as our sin bearer. Laid on him was our sin. Folks, if you and I don't receive this hard, bad news, you'll never rejoice and be thrilled and give precedence to the good news. Because you'll think, well, of course there's good news. And I deserve it. But when you accept the teaching of the Word of God, you realize that without Christ, we're helpless and hopeless. And we realize that when Jesus went to the cross, this was no sham. This was no light thing. He paid our sin debt. What was the greatest horror on the cross? Not the physical suffering, not the suffering by crucifixion, but only one man in the midst of his death suffered the unspeakable horror of the curse of God which sinners deserve. The light of God's gracious presence was turned off. The man's of God's justice were satisfied. And then the next statement that Jesus makes in John 19, 28 is, I thirst. And then he moves on to say in John 19, 30, it is finished. And in Luke 23, 46, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. What an incredible transition. He's now been restored to the fellowship he's always had with the Father. He's no longer my God, my God, but my Father. Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. The price has been paid. It's finished. God raised him from the dead. He's never to suffer again. This is one of the strong messages of the book of Hebrews, of the once and for all suffering of Jesus at Calvary that completely pays the sin debt. Nothing more needed. Are you resting in what Jesus did at Calvary? As we come to the close, let me just say that for myself and for you, the evidence that we don't focus on this as we should shows up this way. Our wickedness and waywardness and cold hearts, our proud and unloving and unforgiving attitudes and our failure to hate sin and our murmuring and complaining and discontent 
can all be traced back to not glorying in the cross. Knowing nothing but Christ and him crucified gives a growing hatred of sin and a growing love for God. And that's why Paul said, God forbid that I should boast about anything save the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ by whom the world is crucified to me and I'm crucified to the world. Galatians 6.14. I like the Phillips paraphrase of that. Yet God forbid that I should boast about anything or anybody except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, which means that the world is a dead thing to me, and I'm a dead man to the world. You start walking with Jesus, and all of this stuff that Satan dangles before you and the world says this is life and this is fulfillment and you can really be somebody if you have this, and, and it's, you, you know it's, it's going to fade away as you, somebody else has got one better, bigger, newer. I still remember a couple driving up to the house many years ago for marriage counseling had a shiny red new pickup truck. I think the second time they drove up, the young man got out of his pickup truck and started into the office. This thing is already rusting. And he made the first payment. <laughs> it's a wonderful day when we glory in the cross because we put value on things that are immortal, we put value on souls, we put value on people who have souls. Instead of putting value on getting my way, we put value on being servants. We put value on being laying down our lives for others for Jesus' sake in the steps of Jesus. Knowing nothing but Christ and him crucified will give great joy. And one of, the, one of the fears that we have, if I get sold out to Jesus and follow Jesus with all my heart, I won't have any fun. Well, fun may not be the right word. I, I don't know that Jesus had fun while he was on the earth. But you know what he had? He had joy. Unspeakable joy. Peace. And walking in his steps, so will you and I. A dead man to the world, oh, we're not too attractive to them because while everybody wants to go to heaven, they just don't want to bow down to Jesus. I mean, if there is a hell, I don't want to go there. And so 
give me heaven. If God operated that way, heaven would be a very miserable place because there'd be a lot of miserable people there because they wouldn't like what goes on. You know what goes on there? The worship of God. <laughs> this morning the call is to me and to you to glory in the cross. Take these two verses, Galatians 2.20 and Galatians 6.14. And, and meditate on them over and over and over and over again. Start from the foundation. Am I crucified with Christ? That's what it means to be a Christian. I've come to the end of myself. I'm trusting Jesus, him alone. And what am I glorying in? I'd be happy if I could have. You may have much or little, but your happiness is not found in what you have other than Jesus. Our Father, we ask for the ministry of the Spirit of God upon our minds and hearts. We, we live in a world that's full of agony and turmoil and trouble, and uh, we get caught up in it. We thank you for the example of the Apostle Paul. I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. He didn't just exist, he lived. He had an exciting life by the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. He had a life that was transformed and being transformed. A life where he was no longer searching for stuff. He saw the deadness of all that. He found life in Christ. May this be a day of revelation. May this be a day of new birth. May this be a day of new life. May this be a day of reviving of life. And we bless you and praise you and thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.